When life happens, plans need to change. Shaping Change, hosted by certified financial planner Ross Marino, is dedicated to helping financial advisors better serve their clients when life takes those unexpected turns. Welcome to the Shaping Change Show. Today, I'm joined by Devin Eckberg, Chief Learning Officer and Managing Director at Investments and Wealth Institute. Man, that's a mouthful, Devin. Welcome. (laughs) It is. Thanks so much for having me, Ross. I appreciate it. You've got a long history in the industry. You have a big academic resume. The, The Institute has multiple designations and programs. You do a lot of great work. But what I always love to know is, what are you geeking out about or what are you focusing on right now? Well, that's a, that's a good question. We have a lot going on, but you know, just overall, broadly speaking, our, our goal is to just provide the right education at the right time to the right people, right? And the way we try to do that is we interface with our university partners. So the Wharton School, Yale, the University of Chicago, we wanna get that real solid academic research-based validation um, but we want to also provide very practical takeaways that advisors can, you know, take away and incorporate into their practice and see results right away. So that's the approach that we take. And uh, we've got a lot of things moving right now, um, you know, uh, things that I'm uh, really excited about. So you have the RMA designation and it's technical and it needs to be because this is financial planning, it's retirement planning, the numbers matter, all the different moving parts. That's a a big value that financial planners bring to their clients is we take a look at everything. We look at every penny, that's what we do. But what caught me is, as I was looking at the curriculum, even though we know it's deeply technical, you start off with saying, you have to understand the mindset. So let's talk about the mindset, what what you look for and why do you focus on it so heavily? Yeah, you're, you're right. There are some technical aspects to the program and there has to be, right? If you're going to be a competent advisor and, and there's, there's a lot of math and, and understanding of risks and things like that in retirement, but you're right. Starting off with the client's mindset is the key. Um, and, and what I like about the program is that it's built from a client's perspective, um, very much from a client's perspective, which is a kind of a holistic, comprehensive view of, of the retirement puzzle. But you mentioned the mindset, um, I mean, I can just sum it up. Like people just want to know that they're okay, right? They want to know that they uh, are not going to run out of money. They're not going to be eating cat food in retirement. They want to know where their paycheck comes from. Uh, you and I were talking earlier about this, this mindset of a paycheck, where that comes from. Um, it's been reinforced over the last 40 or 50 years of their career that they get a paycheck at a certain time. They understand how to budget those. Uh, and that's just something they're very comfortable with. So they're going to kind of default to that. I I do find it fascinating that we will look at someone's balance sheet as a financial planner and say you have X million of dollars. So let's say four or 5 million, which the studies will show once you go over that level, there isn't a lot of gain in happiness, right? It's the perpetual wealth, it's excess. You're gonna have plenty when you're left over. We look at that and instinctively think, oh, you guys are gonna be fine. But then when you sit down with the clients and start talking with them and then listening, they wanna know, Am I going to be okay? Uh, you know, am I going to have enough income? Where am I going to get it from? It may seem like a simple question to us, but it seems like no matter how much they have, the question keeps coming up about the income. Is, is that consistent? I, I hear that all over the place. And the crazy thing is that we kind of overestimate how much clients care about all the technical stuff. 
So when somebody says, hey, where am I going to get my paycheck from? I was talking to an advisor. He was saying he was talking to a client and he said, yeah, they were just asking me, where's this income going to come from? And he just launched into this whole thing about the portfolio, like it's mean variance optimized. And we're going to bring out this income from this part of this allocation. And this is why. And, and the guy's like, well, no, actually, I just want to know where my paycheck's going to come from. And he's like, no, yeah, I'm, I've carved out this whole income part of your portfolio. This is really cool. Money. And he's like, no, 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 no. I just want to know, like, how is it going to get deposited into my bank account? Right. So advisors just kind of overestimate how much they care about this technical stuff. They just want to know the, the, the really basic, like this money is going to show up in my account this day and you got the rest. It really is one of those light bulb moments for financial planners. When we understand that the people want to know how much can I take and where's it going to come from? And those sound like simple questions, but they're direct questions. They really want to know you can take out X amount a month and we'll pull it from here or we'll pull it from there. And then to let them know, I, I of course give an option like most planners, you can have it monthly, you could have it quarterly, you could take a lump sum, it's however you do your budget. And most people say the same thing. Well, I, I do it monthly because that's my budget and that's how they want to do it. And we can, we can sometimes run the risk of getting too technical, obviously, it, it's certainly a challenge. How do you guys help advisors approach, yes, you know all this stuff, you're very smart, you've got all these technicals, but man, you got to keep it simple when you're sitting down with clients. How do you do that? Well, I think it starts, number one, with the language that we use. So we were really, really careful within the program to use language that we thought could resonate with people, right? So when we talk about you know, goals-based portfolios, right? We've got a, maybe an income portfolio with a growth portfolio, maybe another portfolio for reserves or longevity issues, things like that. Um, we don't use like technical terms, right? A flooring portfolio is at its core, like an asset liability matching, right? It's what pension funds use and in institutional investing. We could use that term, but instead we use floor, this is the floor of your income. This is going to cover your essential needs, right? A floor. And people understand what a floor is. It doesn't go lower than the floor, right? Um, so it starts with the language that we use. Um, but then also it just kind of has to make sense, right? Like um, it, has to, it has to be oriented with what their goals and needs are. So not only should they know what the, the portfolio name is, but they should be bought into the objective. They should understand how it fits into the goal that they have. They need consistent income for the rest of their life. This portfolio is designed to do that. And so they're, they're bought into it. They understand it. Um, they support it. They talk to their friends and family about it because they understand it. Um, so that language and then and connecting it to their goals, especially their long-term goals, that's, I think, the key. The simplicity is something that I will always have to work on because it's not instinctive. I think for most people that are mature within an industry, because you tend to learn so much, there's so much going through your head. I just heard on an audio book how the movie Alien was pitched to the studios and they pitched the movie Alien as Jaws in Space. <laughs> right? Right. Done. You, you get it. It's jaws in space. Okay. I get that scary monster eating everybody in space. Tell me about the story. So that's, that's brilliant when you think of it that way. So for you to use floor, 
that's a positive word for me. I stand on it. it. It's great. I get it. I can visualize it. It keeps coming up. It's not some term that I never heard before. And uh, it's Donald Miller in storytelling that talks about the eight pound bowling balls that every time you use a jargon word that a client doesn't know, you gave them an eight pound bowling ball. <laughs> and then you use another word and you gave them another eight pound bowling ball and like you, you load yeah. enough bowling balls on them. There's no way. So, so I, I like that concept because I've seen it and we have to try to simplify as much as possible, given the visuals. How about household balance sheet? I have a picture in my mind of what that is. Then as I look through the RMA program and I've heard people present on it, it's a little deeper than what I would instinctively think is the household balance sheet as a financial planner. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we think of the household balance sheet almost as the central device of the, the retirement planning process, right? It's not only an understanding of what your you know, current liabilities are, current li uh, assets, you know, future liabilities, future assets, things like that. It's a, it's a combination of all of those things. It also tries to capture some of the things that are really hard to quantify, right? Uh, human capital, social capital, in addition to the financial capital, right? But constructing this, this household balance sheet in a certain way is, is almost like an institutional approach to retirement. It's the same way that an institution like a pension might do it, um, but it's catered specifically to the individual. And what it does is it, it when, once the, the balance sheet is constructed, right? It's easy to look at that balance sheet. People mostly understand what the balance sheet is just conceptually, but you can, you can draw a lot of information from it, like how funded you are as a word, like a funded ratio, or, you know, are you underfunded or are you overfunded or are you constrained, right? Um, and the direction to which you, you identify through the household balance sheet process is going to dictate what your financial plan process is going to look like. It's very different if you're underfunded, um, very underfunded. An advisor really can only add value by telling you to earn more or spend less or some combination of the two, right? They can't really pull many levers, so to speak. If you're way overfunded, uh, the, the opposite is true. There's, there's things that an advisor can do to help, but you know, you're, they're not really adding a ton of value because that person is so under, overfunded. It's just it's a question of organizing their finances and getting them all in place. It's that area where maybe clients are a little bit more constrained that an advisor can add the most value. So when optimizing social security or Medicare or you know, income type things, that's gonna be the difference between whether their, their retirement plan is successful or not. And that's where I think the advisor can add the most value is those constrained clients. And the balance sheet instantly tells you where they fall in that spectrum of, of fundedness. Can you talk a little bit about human and social capital and how I should frame that as a financial planner when I'm working with clients? Yeah, you know, I'll just, uh, the best way to express it is maybe an example. So for example, social capital, you know, how often do we talk about clients um, that are, they're approaching retirement or maybe in retirement that are having some health issues and how do you quantify having a family member that is expected to be a caretaker for that individual, right? There's a monetary value to that, by the way, right? You either insource that, that, that caretaking or you outsource it. If you need to outsource it because the family structure is such that, you know, that, that, that it's not a viable option for that person to be a caretaker, then we've got to start budgeting in the potential uh, to outsourcing a caretaker. 
And so that, that all kind of fits into kind of the social uh, uh, capital that's hard to quantify, but it raises questions to, for people. It's like, okay, well, what does happen if I need a caretaker? What am I going to do? Who's going to help me do that? And those get into those real practical questions that I think a lot of advisors ignore. Well, Devin, I don't want to talk about needing a caretaker and being infirmed and not getting out of bed and, and knowing that depends aren't enough. I actually need someone to come in with a bedpan. I mean, let's be honest. These are the things that people think about when they, they hear caretaker or nursing homes. I don't even want to talk about that. How, do my client, how, how am I going to get my clients to talk about it when there's such an aversion to even consider we might end up that way one day? I think it's a great question. I, I think I think we'd be doing the client a disservice if we didn't talk about it, even if it's a little bit unpleasant. But I'd also I wouldn't I'd, I'd caution advisors to not underestimate how much clients do want to talk about this stuff. It's it's, it's possibly they they may feel uncomfortable. They don't talk about this with their you know with their families or other things like that. But they they probably expect to some degree to talk about this with their financial advisors. And more so, there's this trend I think that I'm seeing in retirement advice that people don't just want to talk about their finances only. People don't wanna optimize their wealth necessarily, which, which kind of sounds weird. They, they, they're more interested in optimizing their lives with their wealth. And there's a huge difference between those two things. And um, you know, this is one of those conversations that you have in pursuit of optimizing their life with their wealth, not necessarily their wealth per se. It's balancing out the quality of life and the quantity of assets. And it's easy for me to overemphasize the quantity of assets versus the quality of life. It comes, I think, with being a financial planner. We also may see risk a little bit differently. So can you talk about risk management within the context of retirement? Because we know it's evolving. So how should I look at that? Well, uh, risk is a huge thing. And, and we've, from our research, clients, they want to talk about this. This is like top of their list as far as um, things that they, because when they say I'm worried about this or worried about that, that's instinctively what they're thinking in terms of risk. Um, and it's interesting, the way we frame risk is important because we can overwhelm people with risk really easily. Um, the Society of Actuaries has this uh, document they put out every year. It's a retirement risk management. They identify 168 different retirement risks, right? And talk about bowling balls, right? We're not going to wow. dump 168 risks onto people. So we have to frame it down to, you know, we frame it down to about eight or nine very specific, you know, categories of risk. And then what we do is we take what's called a clinical approach to retirement risk where we're almost kind of acting like a physician versus a patient, right? We're trying to understand, okay, we've got this risk, but you have some exposure to it and here are what the consequences are to this risk. And so looking at the exposure and consequences are, is a different um, conversation than a lot of advisors take, which is more kind of probability based. They're like, well, the probability of you, you know, becoming, uh, you know, needing a caretaker is very small, so we're not gonna talk about it, right? But if we talk about it in terms of, okay, well, you have some risk of exposure here and here are what the consequences are. When they hear what those consequences are versus what the probabilities are, that triggers a different part of their brain, right? And they're much more engaged with that conversation. Um, and I, 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 you know, if you want to hear kind of a story about that, I, uh, you know, people, people think in probabilities, I don't know if you're a gambler, I'm kind of a degenerate gambler, <laughs> 
when, when, you, when you walk into a casino, right, you're thinking probabilities. None of those tables at the casino is built with your probabilities in your favor, right? So you know that and, and you're going into that. But what if I told you that there's a table in that casino that has a probability of you winning, like a binary outcome, yes or no, and you'll win, let's say 87% of the, the time. Right? That's, a, that's a pretty substantial probability that you're going to win. And I ask this question to advisors all the time. And they're like, yeah, I'll play that table all day long, right? Because the expected value of that probability is, is very high. Um, so they'll go play it and they'll play it all night long. Well, what if I told you that that, that table game is Russian roulette, right? You have a five and six chance of winning and one in six chance of losing, right? Which is, which is correct. Um, so you might play that table once, but you're not going to play that table all night long, right? Because the consequences outweigh the probabilities, right? And your exposure to those consequences is what really matters. We don't want to risk catastrophic. Is that really what you're saying? Well, well, basically, right, right. So, um, so some some risks that you think of, it's like, okay, well, there's there's a very low probability of this happening but the consequences are so severe that you can't ignore it, right? So what am I gonna do with this risk? Well, the textbook says, well, if it's a low probability and it's a very, very high consequence of risk, we might try to transfer that risk, right? That might be an insurance probability. People do that with life insurance all the time, right? Low probability of death, high severity uh, of, of problem to the financial plan. Um, so they're gonna probably outsource that risk. But when we look at, you know, maybe more frequent risks um, that, that occur, maybe not to the degree, like the consequences aren't that severe, we might start to try to manage some of that risk. We might, our, our uh, process might be to say, okay, this risk is, exists. The probabilities are, you know, probably either medium to high and uh, the consequences are probably medium. So I'm actually gonna take this route instead of that route. And looking at it from in terms of severity and frequency um, is, is, a, is an effective way to do that. Yeah, that's insurance uh, 101, right? You retain it, you share it, or you transfer it. And low probability, high catastrophic consequences, that's what we pay for. That's what we want insurance for. It makes a lot of sense. So since we're going into probability, how about we talk a little bit about probability-based versus safety-first strategies. I think that's a great compare and contrast conversation. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, I think people think in terms of probabilities, I, you know, I, I come from an investment background, right? So when I'm constructing portfolios, especially from like a modern portfolio theory perspective, it's all probabilities, right? It's all the efficient frontier, expected values, expected returns, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's appropriate for some portfolios. Right. So if you think of like a growth portfolio or what we actually call the upside portfolio, if we're going to use our terms, um, that may very well be a probability based portfolio. Right. I, I want to optimize the growth within that, that thing. I want to make it as efficient as possible. That's where I'm going to do my mean variance optimization and so forth. So for that portfolio, for that particular goal, uh, probability based thinking is probably the appropriate answer. Right. But if I'm thinking of the floor portfolio, right, or the income portfolio, that's probably not where I want to go. I want to go safety first, right? I want to do what the pension funds are doing. I want to, I want to immunize my portfolio. I want to immunize my liabilities with my assets, right? I want to be much, much more deliberate 
about the way I construct that portfolio. And it's going to be a safety first sort of approach. So when people ask me that question, well, what's better, probability first or safety first? My answer is always, it depends. What's, what's the objective of the portfolio? And it's not unusual to have different approaches that uh, um, support uh, the different portfolios for those particular goals. Well, I appreciate the work that the Institute does. I, I, I certainly love the way you frame certain things and even just bringing up human and social capital, the, the household balance sheet. Uh, that was just a great conversation for me to be a part of because it really helps me expand how I think about it and, and how I approach different things. Uh, how about some final thoughts before we go to the magic wand question where you can change anything in the world? Um, anything else you want to add about retirement and income or something the Institute is doing coming up? Well, I mean, I would just emphasize like the way we're looking at retirement as a topic, um, we think that this conversation is just going to grow and grow and grow, right? If you look at the demographics of this country, uh, as people age and they need good, competent advice, people are living longer, uh, longevity issues, healthcare issues, things like that. Like this topic is not going to go away. And for advisors, you know, it's, it's also true that advisors are aging too, right? They're retiring or or maybe selling their businesses and things like that. So the combination of those two big trends, I think there's gonna be a shortage of competent advisors in the retirement space. So if you think about it from your own practice, um, you know that should be an area of focus for you as a practice, right? If you're looking to differentiate yourself, position yourself as that competent retirement advisor. And then also note that the, the whole field of research around retirement is evolving still, right? So there's tons and tons of good research coming out from universities and other practitioners and things like that. So if you're not paying attention to that, I think you're missing out on an opportunity again to differentiate yourself. Um, so that's what I'm excited about. And that's why we went down that route of developing this RMA program in anticipation of all those needs. Well, I love the way you describe it as missing out on an opportunity. That's a great way to do it. Uh, I'm a practitioner, so I'm more direct. You're going to miss out on the future of the business. So you have to stay plugged in with what's going on in retirement. That's my opinion on it. Because what we did 10 years ago, we do a little differently today. Why would I not assume we're going to do a little differently 10 years from now? So That's exactly let's try right. to stay ahead of the pack, stay ahead of the curve. So let's close with it. Here's the magic wand that I swiped from my daughter's. If you could wave it, because I'm pretty sure it works, Devin. If you okay. could wave this wand, I trust it. anything I trust in the it. world, there you go. What would you change? Anything in the whole wide world? or whole in the wide world, world, Devin. <laughs> well, look, um, you know, the, I, I think we need to go back to being able to talk to each other. Um, you know, and this, this, is, this is appropriate, certainly for an advisor and their client, but this is also just in general. I, I think we're... we're talking past each other in a lot of ways through politics and, uh, you know, social media and, you know, other things like that. Um, I, I think we need to get back to developing personal relationships again, right. And trusting each other. And uh, there's a huge amount of value that comes from being able to, um, uh, you know, connect with each other on a deeper level. And I worry that we're not doing that COVID especially accelerated that trend, I think. And so in a post-COVID world, being very intentional about developing those human relationships again, uh, if I could wave a magic wand, I, I think that's something I'd be working on. I'd be right behind you. I think that's awesome. Devin Eckberg, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much, Ross. 
Thank you for listening to Shaping Change with Ross Marino. This show is for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide recommendations or advice. Speak with a legal, tax, or financial advisor before making any decisions. Past performance references are historical and do not guarantee future results. Visit rlsummit.com to learn more.